0: Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, whatever aspirations Vladimir Putin had when he began the invasion of Ukraine on the February the 24th, he will not have anticipated what a disaster this invasion has been for his nation. And the latest blow comes today, actually, when Finland and Sweden will go to Brussels to apply to join the NATO alliance. It's an amazing development. Sweden, for example, has been neutral and non-aligned for 200 years. And Finland, which has a very large border with Russia, has also remained neutral. This development strengthens NATO considerably, and it would not have been something Vladimir Putin would have wished to see happening We're joined now from Sweden by Philip O'Connor, an Irish journalist who's been working and living in Sweden for over 20 years to discuss uh, this development. Philip, it's almost impossible to overstate the significance of this development when you consider Sweden's history in particular. 200 years neutral, non-aligned and have not fought a war. Tell us how momentous it is for the Swedish people, because I note opinion polls. There was 40% for joining NATO in a public opinion poll before this began. That number is 60-plus percent now. What does that reflect?
2: Um, It reflects basically what is an overnight change, Eamon, in the way Sweden sees NATO and the Nordic and Baltic region and the world around it. And as you say, it's been an absolutely momentous week of of politics and, and pomp and ceremony in the Nordic region. So Sweden and Finland saw what has happened to Ukraine, Vladimir Putin and Russia invading there, and that was it. That was like flicking a switch. So they moved swiftly ahead then with plans to join NATO. They decided that after all these years of The Cold War, all these years of diplomacy, all these years of trying not to poke the Russian bear, they decided that's it. Now, for Sweden, that means the abandonment, as you said, of two centuries of freedom of alliance and of neutrality. And it meant the Social Democratic Party reversing seventy-three years of opposition to NATO solely because of the threats posed to the world order by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Sunday in particular. It's been a big few weeks or a big few months for the Nordic region in general, Lehman. But Sunday in particular was a it was a stunning day, a seismic day for this region and for Sweden in particular. So I was out around town, around Stockholm on Sunday afternoon, and the Social Democratic Party had called to a press conference at six o'clock in the evening. So I went out on the shopping street, the Grafton Street of Sweden, if you like, which is called Gotham, and I went to talk to people there. Now these aren't people, or very few of them certainly, who are standing there waving NATO flags and say yes, call us up, put us into a war anywhere you want in the world. That's not, they're not rattling their sabres here. This is not something that the Swedish people really want, but it's something that they feel that they have to have. And on the way there, uh, Eamon, from Drottning Gothen, I sort of went up towards the parliament and looped back around. There's a fountain here at Serial Square where they tend to celebrate their big sporting victories, like when they came third at the World Cup in 1994. And a few hundred yards north of that, Eamon, is where Olaf Palme was shot dead in 1986. And if you go on further along the street, on the left-hand side is the churchyard where he's buried. And on the other side of the street is the Social Democrats' office at number 68, Svea And that's where they took the decision that this is the end of Sweden neutrality. This is the end of freedom of alliance. This is where we start the process of joining NATO.
0: It's interesting. Uh, as I understand it, Palme was an outstanding politician in Sweden. He was a determined neutral, as it were, I, am I right about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, he was most, he became famous in international circles for his opposition to the Vietnam War. Yes. So, basically in Vietnam, you had one side, you had the Americans on one side, and you had pro-communists on the other side. But Palme came out as a social democrat and said, no, this is morally wrong. We shouldn't be seeking to impose world order the way the Americans are doing. And it was very unusual for a European politician. And at that stage, Sweden, because of this, you know, at that stage, what would it be, 160 years, maybe 150 years of neutrality, they had a moral voice in the global political argument and that moral voice was Olaf Palme and he made very strong statements, very strong speeches against that and stood by them even when he was attacked by Americans, by the American government, by American diplomats and he really was a man alone for a while before everybody else sort of came in behind him obviously things in in Vietnam didn't go the way of the Americans in the end but he was a lone voice to begin with and that's part of the discussion really around NATO for Ireland and for Sweden and for other neutral powers is how can we best serve the international community here? Can we be honest brokers in inverted commas by being neutral? Can be the can we be the ones that try to broker peace? And that was something that Sweden successfully did for a long time. Now, you can argue that no state is really neutral. We all have our allies. We all have our enemies. We sell weapons. We sell fuel. We sell IT services to people who use these things to wage war. So nobody's really truly neutral. But Sweden walked that tightrope, and Finland uh, in common with them, much better probably than many other nations in the late 20th and early 21st century.
0: Now, another thing I learned when I began to read up on Sweden's decision is that the Social Democrats have taken first place in every national election in Sweden since 1917, which is quite extraordinary. I don't think you could say that of any other political party in a democratic society uh, anywhere.
2: Well, that's the thing. Social democracy, like this is the bedrock of social democracy here. You know, the Scandinavian model of social democracy and none more so than in Sweden, Eamon. So if we go back to the the war period there, as you remember, you mentioned yourself that Sweden weren't involved in that war. The Germans did move through here. They did provide, you know, things like metals and timber to various war efforts around the place, but managed to keep themselves out of that war. Norway was invaded. Finland was invaded by both Russia and Germany in turn. But the Swedes managed to stay out of that and keep their industry intact. Now, as you said, they were already hugely popular among people from 1917 onwards, right? But in the post-war period, they built what was called the people's home. So they figured, we have all our industry intact. We have any amount of timber because the place is covered in, it's like, you know, outside a supermarket on Christmas Eve, there's so many trees around the place that they can use to build things. And they converted that into wealth, not for the few, but for the many. And that was where things like paid parental leave for mothers and fathers came in, where universal healthcare came in. The money was there for for all that. Now, they have sort of slid in popularity since they had their own financial crisis at the beginning of the 90s. And there's an awful lot of neoliberalism to be seen in this country. So other parties have caught up. The moderate, which is the center right, or right-wing party, have caught up on them. The Sweden Democrats, a far-right party, are the third largest party now in in the country. But the Social Democrats have still managed, you know, a little bit more than a third of the vote. And the interesting thing about this, Eime, is that this was one of the, the sort of the key issues for the centre-right and the right was joining NATO, and now all of a sudden it's a social democratic government that yes. is going to have the political benefit of this, and that's not to be underestimated, because we always hear, and there's an election here in Sweden this year in September, we always hear the right-wing parties talk about law and order, we talk about defence spending, they're always the ones sort of pushing that particular envelope, but now it's Magdalena Andersson who is in the position to say, no, no, we took the responsible decision, we decided to join NATO to protect Sweden, and that's a very, very powerful proposition when she goes to the polls in September.
0: Now, what do you believe changed 200 years of history and a deep conviction that Swedish people had about neutrality and also about uh, nuclear weapons? What do you think it was? It's only 11 weeks, Philip, since Putin invaded Ukraine, and we've seen terrible stuff. that We've seen brilliant reporting, uh, particularly in this uh, area uh, from Sky News of war crimes, destruction, rape, everything with reporters on the ground doing brilliant work. Uh, So it's very vivid and it's not hard to understand why people are horrified uh, by what they've seen. Were the same visual images available to Swedish people? What was it that in 11 weeks has changed public opinion so dramatically?
2: I think the answer in one word, Eamon, is fear and this is what, you know, when you stop people on the street as a journalist for radio or TV, they're called Vox Pops, and you ask a yes. man or woman in the street uh, for their opinions, and they tend to be very, very honest, right? So I spoke to a woman the other day just to, uh, the, the Swedish Parliament building has a pedestrian walkway straight through it, and it's deliberate. It's, you know, to put democracy at the heart of the people, and people at the heart of the democracy. Yep. And this is where the climate activist, Bia yes, Thunberg, tends to sit on a Friday morning for her strike. So it's very much a part of life. It's not like, you know, the big fences that you would have around doll there and you can actually walk straight through you can see the politicians coming and going there and the people around there told me about fear i spoke to a woman the other day 62 years of age git lennard is her name and she was standing there with a flag a swedish flag with the word nato in white letters on it and i asked her why she was in favor of sweden joining nato and she said i have five children i have grandchildren she said if you'd asked me six months ago i would have said no i wouldn't have even known what joining nato meant but that day the 24th of February, 2022, everything changed for her and for many, many other Swedes. As you say, it went from 40% to over 60% who are now in favor of that. And one of the main things that gets said to me, Eamon, was that look at Ukraine would they not have been much happier if they were already in NATO, knowing that the other 29 or 30 NATO member states, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all is a core tenet of of NATO's existence. And if they hadn't known that the cavalry was coming, you know, how much happier would they have been? And most Swedish people, they're in the same situation now. They want to know that. They know that Norway will help them. They know that Finland will help them. But having the might of, of Turkey and the United States of America and, and Hungary, these other nations, that have no choice, that they've all signed up to this thing, that they would have to come and defend them, that it provides this sort of you know cloak of protection and helps people to sleep easier in their beds at night. And in one way, I Amy, mean, you mentioned there that Vladimir Putin couldn't have foreseen this, right? But in, in one way, this is actually a propaganda victory for him, right? Because he has talked the whole time about the dangers of... NATO expansion, about the Russian people not wanting NATO on their doorstep, well, now they have an 800-mile border with Finland, which is NATO on their doorstep, or will be once all the nations ratify it. So, in one way, it's actually a propaganda victory for Putin, who can now say, what did I say? This is what they wanted all along. They were trying to fool us. They were trying to, you know, uh, pull the wool over our eyes, but this is what they wanted. So, in one way, whereas it may not strengthen his case in Ukraine or internationally, it will certainly strengthen him on a domestic level.
0: Yes, that Clause 5 of the NATO Charter is the clause that says if one is attacked, we're all attacked and we're all in. What about the relationship historically between Sweden and Finland? The Finns are remarkable. They fought wars against Russia and, if, and they've won wars against Russia. Is it a close relationship? And was the fact uh, that Finland seemed likely to join NATO a factor in Swede's consideration of this.
2: I think it was absolutely decisive, and an illustration of how close the two nations were, or the two nations are, uh, came yesterday here in the city of Stockholm. As King Carl Gustav and um, you had the president of of Finland, Sauli Niinistö, he was on a state visit here. So yesterday morning, when I was standing on a balcony at the Royal Palace, watching the two of them come up in a horse and carriage, and the streets lined with uh, soldiers dressed in in ceremonial dress, so not military dress. This wasn't one of these, you know, North Korea, look at all our tanks kind of thing, but. there was a huge sort of display of solidarity going on there. And then they came in on their horse and carriage into the courtyard of the palace and they spoke to the press very briefly. They made two statements. Now, Finns would always say that they care a huge amount about Sweden, but Sweden doesn't care as much about them. They're not as interested. But that, again, has changed since the 24th of February. I think there's been a huge interest in in Sweden. They would look at the Finns as being a sort of a little brother, and I think the Finns would see themselves as being little brothers. But it was absolutely essential, and there's a huge political power, or geopolitical power, in the two of them going to Brussels. It actually happened this morning at 7 o'clock that they went to NATO, and they delivered the applications together. And those two applications basically mean, that there are no blank spots on the map of the Nordic and Baltic region anymore when it comes to NATO. Everybody is either in NATO or in the process of joining NATO now. And that's a piece on the chessboard or on the map that is of huge value to the international community and of huge value to NATO and saying, okay, all of this area is now aligned. There is no weak link anymore. They're all together. So these discussions that would have gone on, and it was interesting to hear pre- uh, President uh, Nineslo yesterday speaking to the King in Swedish and speaking to the Swedish Parliament then later on the same morning in Swedish. The Swedish is kind of laboured, so uh, Swedish is actually an official language in Finland, around about 10% of Swedes, including their soccer captain Tim Sparv, they're native spe- Swedish speakers so they're bilingual, they speak Swedish mostly but also Finnish. So to hear him doing that, it was another one of these gestures, and we've seen plenty of them ourselves since the Good Friday Agreement, when the Queen came to Ireland for instance and used the Kupla Fuck. Australia uh, to address the people there. So these things, whereas you know, I'm not a fan of them, I'm not a fan of royalty, I'm not a fan of policies or these kinds of things, but there's a huge symbolic value in that in terms of the solidarity that's showing to the rest of the world, not just to Vladimir Putin and to Russia and to America, but to each other and to the other NATO nations, that we're going into NATO together hand in hand and we will do what's asked of us to defend one another.
0: Now, the relationships in NATO were strained when Donald Trump for example, was president. He was at odds with NATO and didn't believe or affected not to believe that uh, the United States should even uh, be a member, much less a leader of NATO. What is the Swedish attitude to the United States, which really in this, under this president, uh, Joe Biden has been a galvanizing force for NATO uh, and its allies to face up to a uh, Putin
2: Well, I think the relationship between Sweden and the United States of America is much better now than it would have been in Olaf Palme's time. I think Sweden has moved much closer. And of course, you know, by joining NATO, it's undeniable that they've moved much closer to them in terms of how they see international security. But one of the interesting issues, Eamon, there is that, you know, what happens now? So this is not like, you know, when your listeners apply for their Tesco club card, for instance. You don't just send in the form and everybody, like it gets rubber stamped and it gets sent back. So every NATO nation, the United States of America, Hungary, Everybody has to approve, both Sweden
0: and Finland, for the two countries to join. And at the moment, Turkey, who you mentioned earlier, are making noises um, about not approving, but it looks like Erdogan is looking for some kind of a deal uh, or a goodie. Out of, out of it.
2: Yes. And, and the, that, that is a huge problem for many people in Sweden, especially those of Turkish and of Kurdish descent, right? So you'll know the Kurdish people have battled for many years. Their country has been divided up, part of it ruled by Syria, part of it by Iran, part of it by Iraq, and part of it by Turkey. And Erdogan has never been any friend of the Kurds. And he's described Sweden and Finland Eamon, as being a guest house for terrorists, right? Yes. So the Kurdistan uh, People's Workers' Party, the PKK, they have people who have left Kurdistan because they've been perse- persecuted they've moved to places like Sweden and Finland, and indeed, I think four different parties have members of the Swedish parliament who have Kurdish roots, and that goes from the left, the former Communist Party here, the left party, to the far-right Sweden Democrats, so there's no sort of political consensus among Kurds here. But With Erdogan saying that and saying that, okay, they're harbouring terrorists and that kind of thing, that sets up a diplomatic situation whereby he will be looking for something in return, or Turkey could be looking for something in return for approving Sweden and Finland as members of NATO. Sweden and Finland have been quite outspoken. There's an embargo on both countries selling weapons to Turkey, for instance, because of this whole situation. Now, That mightn't sound like much, right? But uh, SAAB's jazz fighter planes are hugely popular among air forces throughout the world. Turkey hasn't has access to them, right? Missile guidance systems, missiles themselves, engines, tracking technologies, IT technologies, all of those things are things that Turkey might want and that might eventually end up being used against the Kurds. So that is something that has to be worked out. And I spoke to a man the other day who was extremely worried, his words were, that the the Turks are going to be thrown under the bus again and not for the first time. As part of Sweden increased its own security, that in turn down in Kurdistan, the mountains, that they're going to decrease security for the Kurdish people. And that's a huge risk. And it's something, I think, that the Social Democrats would need to be very, very cognizant of because Sana Marine, the, the Finnish Prime Minister is also a Social Democrat. They would all need to be very cognizant of that because I was outside the Vega number 68 the other night, outside the Social Democrat offices, and just as we were leaving uh, for TV, you always like to get, you know, the Minister, the Prime Minister getting into their car and driving away. It's a lovely shot if you see it on the news, And representatives of the PKK or people who are supporting the Kurdish uh, People's Workers' Party were outside waving flags and saying uh, no to NATO. Uh, The the PKK is the people and the people, that's us. So they were standing outside. There wasn't many of them. There was five or six of them. And they've had a few flags put up and a few flares that off around town. They're there and they're trying to make as much noise as possible so that they won't become collateral damage in Sweden and to a lesser extent Finland joining NATO.
1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Now, one of the most influential politicians in Sweden is Magdalena Andersson. She's the prime minister and the Social Democrats uh, party leader. And she apparently is universally respected and her intervention was important, was it?
2: It was. And one of the things you have to hand to Magdalena Andersson, strangely enough, for, for a country that has had the Social Democrats as the biggest party since 1917, she's the first female prime minister. So Margaret Thatcher got there long before, the first female prime minister in Sweden. And interestingly, Eamon, what she did was very, very clever. So she reached out a hand across the aisle to Ulf Kistesson, who's the leader of the centre-right moderate party here. They would have been the party that always would have had you know, a good eye towards joining NATO. But rather than, you know, take the reins and go herself, she decided that she was going to include him all the way. So she has been very inclusive across all levels of the House, but Christensen has been the key political ally, and that's where she gets the respect. So the previous Prime Minister, when we spoke about previous Prime Ministers, uh, when we were talking about COVID, for instance, that was Stefan Löfven, who was a former union man, a former negotiator, and you could tell because everything he did was horse trading, you know, in one way or another. But Magdalena Andersson has abandoned that for the common good, or certainly appeared to do that for the common good, because she will get the political wind beneath her wings now. And it has been very, very well received by people on both sides of the political divide here. So she's doing very, very well. Uh, she's very well spoken, both in Swedish and English. Uh, she made no bones of the fact that look, she, her mind was changed by, by the invasion. That's it. She was against NATO and now she's for it. And many people will often try, politicians in particular, will often try to, when they change their mind, they'll try to convince you that this is yep. what they thought all along. But she hasn't gone down that route. She's never said, well, actually, I was always in favour of NATO. She hasn't said that. She said, I was against it. But now the world has changed and we have to change with it. And there's a great sense of security. I'm it hard to remember. Uh, Frederick Reinfeld, a previous moderate prime minister uh, in the mid-2000s there, he once talked about opening their hearts to refugees and he became very, very popular for a brief per- period because of that sense of humanity. And that's probably maybe 10, maybe not 10 years, eight years since somebody was that popular. And that sort of, you know, that's a sentimental liking or love for her around now that, you know, that the country is in a safe pair of hands. She's a strong prime minister who's capable of working across the uh, the divides?
0: Um, Just as an Irishman, Philip, uh, as you know, there are what you might call neutrality hawks in Ireland. They're on the left, um, nearly all of them, and there has been, I wouldn't say, a debate about Ireland's neutrality because I don't think the protagonists are prepared to engage with each other. But when you look at the Swedish experience In particular, after 200 years, they have made this momentous decision. In Ireland, as you know, there is this debate, and we're proud of our neutrality. Um, And many of us feel that uh, our neutrality now, in the way the the world is shaping up, is impossible to take seriously, particularly as we're members of the European Union in this changing world. Is there any resonance for you or for us from the Swedish experience and their willingness to abandon it. I think there is, Eamon, but we have to remember that, you know, the, the actual sort of geography of how
2: this works, right? Ireland being invaded by, by Russia is, or being, you know, I know we saw that graphic on... I was did, the Sky yeah. I was,
0: there's a bomb on the way. Exactly, and yeah, they'll hit yeah. Liverpool yeah.
2: and all of a sudden they'll take out, you know, the north inner city or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, we haven't really been in that position where we have been, you know, we're a little... On the front line, yes. Exactly. So, whereas the Swedes here would have had, you know, Nazi troop trains travelling through them to Norway, you know, to, to gain access to the ports in the North Sea and that kind of thing. Finland, as you mentioned, fought bitter wars against the Russians and the Germans. If you go, I've been down in Belgium uh, around Remembrance Sunday, and I've seen those memories are still alive down there. We're not in that situation. We have had, you know, many years of war ourselves. We're our nearest neighbour, so we have that memory, but not in the, sort of, the 20th or the 21st century. We don't have those living memories, maybe, that other nations have. And I think it's worth interrogating. If you remember, after 9-11, uh, George W. Bush, the American president at the time, said, you're either with us or against us. And that, to me, was a very dangerous binary. And in being asked to choose sides now, I think, you know, there's great arguments to be made for Sweden joining NATO, you know, politically and in terms of security. Yes. Things, yes. And there is no going back. You know, it's yes. like, being, you know, you're either pregnant or you're not, you're either in or you're out. Sweden is in now. I can't see them asking for any sort of time limited thing. or that. You're just, you've got to go, and you've got to go the whole way in. That's that's period of neutrality is now over. It's consigned to history. Ireland is a little bit different. And if you talk to anybody who served in the Irish Armed Forces in the, in the Middle East, in Palestine, in the Golan Heights, they will tell you how appreciated they are by yes. both sides, okay? Even yes. if you had Israeli intelligence officers learning Irish so that they could listen to what the lads were saying in the command posts. you know. It's, everybody appreciates an honest broker, a third party, a mediator. And so before Ireland abandons that kind of neutrality, it's, it would do well to interrogate itself and say, okay, right. can we p- become what Switzerland was in the Second World War? Can we become a safe haven, a place where people can go. You know, I was in the guest house in Northern Ireland where John Hume brought all parties to the Nor- Northern Ireland conflict and sat them all down. And yeah. it's a fascinating idea. It may not be possible. Militarily, we have very, very little to offer NATO. You know, we might have a little yeah. bit of manpower, no Air Force to speak of, and a little bit of a Navy. So, that would have to change. You're talking about 2% of, uh, of uh, GDP. GDP. Sorry, I couldn't yeah. remember the English term for it there. But well, you're talking about 2% of GDP has to be invested. And the Swedes will now have to spend a lot of money. There's a lot of arms dealers are very happy this morning because the Swedes are just over 1%. There's a lot of money going to have to be spent. So it's worth interrogating that idea But it's also worth seeing it. One of the things that struck me, Eamon, uh, yesterday is I went to the palace yesterday for this, you know, big show of pomp and ceremony. I came up at what they call the King's Garden at the underground station there, and I walked out, and I saw all these young people lined up in their uniforms, right? Now, these people are soldiers. They may be wearing ceremonial uniforms that have, you know, the equivalent of muskets standing there, but they're all young people under 25. Now, I wouldn't be a neutrality hawk, but I certainly don't see the point of war in many situations. And it's always worth asking, what are we being asked? And I wanted to ask the Swedish Prime Minister this on Sunday. What what are you prepared to give to NATO, and what will NATO want in return? And I think that's a key question for Ireland to ask before we commit to these things, and we have to be well aware of it. And I do think that it should be put to the Irish people if that's the way we want to go. And when we do make a choice, then unfortunately, it's one of those things that we all have to row in behind. The Swedes famously, uh, when they have a referendum here, it's not binding on the government, so it's only you know to to tell the government how the people are feeling, and then they will make their decision based on that. This one won't go to the government. I think you know part of what was to do with this idea of online misinformation, and doing so would just be a complete shit show, if you'll pardon my French. You know? yes. So they've decided to go ahead, and that this will be much quicker. But I do think that there's a lot of honest and hard conversations that will need to be had. And indeed, Sweden and Finland will continue to have them even after joining NATO.
0: Okay, Philip, uh, we're grateful to you for joining us. Just before I let you go, we talked a lot with you about COVID and the Swedish approach to COVID, and uh, I think I saw last week in a summary of how the various European countries had dealt with COVID, that Sweden came out very, very well indeed. In fact, the metric used was excess deaths. And the headline I saw was Sweden's proved right after all or something of that nature. Has that, uh, do we owe Anders Tegnell an apology or do I owe him an apology? Uh,
2: I'm not quite sure you do, Evan, because I've spoken to a few people about that particular report. It came from the World Health Organization mm. and uh, I spoke to a few people about it because I had a feeling you might ask me about it. And the thing is that excess mortality is a bit of a blunt instrument in terms of measuring, you know, it's like between yeah. your finger and your thumb and trying to guess a distance kind of thing. So there's so many factors that play into that in terms of your health service, in terms of uh, PPE that was available at the time, in terms of lockdowns and that. So the the experts that i spoke spoken to and I, one of them is just messaging me now as, as I'm speaking to you and you know these people are telling me that look that is like it's it certainly gives you an idea of what happened but the fact of the matter is that Sweden still had far more deaths and far greater excess mortality than many of its Nordic neighbours yes. and in fact the ones that I would listen to maybe we can have a conversation about this again in the future. There's been two reports that have come out. One is from what's called the Corona Commission here in Sweden and they were very very critical of how care especially for the elderly and for people with dementia was handled at the beginning. The way they didn't receive the care that they deserved or that they were legally entitled to. And the other one came yesterday, from, or I think it was the day before yesterday, from the National Audit Office, which really went in hard on the Swedish government and the Swedish regions who are responsible for healthcare here for not being prepared. So they had no stocks of masks or gowns or ventilators or that kind of thing. And the National Audit Office said, look, you should have been prepared for this. And because you weren't, people died. So uh, let's wait. On. We'll hold off on sending the bouquet of flowers to Mr. Tegnell yet, and maybe we can talk about it for, in more detail. <laughs>
0: okay. No apologies required. Thank you very much for joining us from Stockholm. That's Philip O'Connor, an Irish man who's lived and worked in Sweden for uh, over 20 years. And we're grateful to Philip, as always, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.